Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to The Parenthood. My birthday is in June, a month that many think is a great time to have a party. But for the first 20 odd years of my life, June was not a fun month because it was blighted by the exam season. Exams are stressful. 20 years after my formal education ended, I'm still plagued by nightmares in which I'm sitting in an exam that I haven't prepared for. But love them or loathe them, they're here to stay, which is why I'm delighted to have Dr. Jane Gilmore, clinical psychologist and expert in the conversations we need to have with our children to help them navigate life. Jane, thank you so much for being here today. Our children rely on their parents to teach them to walk, to talk, to make the right life choices. And I presume we play a crucial role in teaching them how to deal with exams. Well, we do. Absolutely. Because um, no matter how old your child is, they will reference you, look to you to sort of figure out how concerning or dangerous something is in the world. And that will include sitting exams. So how you manage them and talk about them will have a major impact. Now, if we're thinking about teenagers, they may not let you know that they're watching you, but they still are. So, it, you know, it's this is not about putting too much pressure on a parent, but seeing it as an opportunity to help your young person through, um, you know, what is an inevitable experience during uh, the school years and potentially into university years if they take that route. And obviously, a degree of calmness and not sort of freaking out is really, really important when it comes to exams. And typically, people are quite stressed when it does come to exams. But can that stress be a good thing? Or is it always a bad thing? It absolutely is. And actually, stress has got a really bad reputation in the general world. You know, when we talk about stress, we inevitably go to a bad place. That's a bad thing. I'm so stressed. But actually, there's a a really interesting body of work. Um, led by a group in Stanford, actually, uh, talking that that allows us to reconsider what stress might be. And actually, a brief burst of stress is a wonderful thing because stress is really a signal to your body and your brain that you need to recruit extra resources to meet the challenge in front of you. So it's really like rocket fuel to get you through this brief period. And actually, we know that if you can consider stress in that way, that brief burst of stress as a positive, then it changes the way your body and your brain react. And actually, you're more likely to learn from the situation and you're more likely to build resilience and to be able to move forward. So it's actually a really important um, change of perspective. It's a change of mindset. Um, And it's really important to differentiate that small burst of stress like an exam 
from something that's chronically stressful. So if you have a young person that's day to day feeling overwhelmed and tearful, that might be considered chronic stress and that's not good news. And I would consider that toxic for the developing brain. So as parents, this is about differentiating between finding that moment of really having to pull out all your resources and find something extraordinary out about yourself in an exam and recognizing when things are day to day you know overwhelming then you know you might want to reconsider how you um address it so you know thinking about modeling this in in a in as i say changing your mindset is definitely doable but it takes time so if you are somebody that has i don't know a big day ahead as a parent and you've got um you know you're feeling a bit nervous you say that and say look i'm feeling really nervous this is my body getting ready to you know meet the challenge talk about it day to day um, rather than, you know, dropping that in, you know, the day before the exams, because that probably won't stick. But if you can talk about it day to day, a short burst of energy um, from a brief experience of stress is a wonderful thing. Embrace it, take it and use it. But also in a way, kind of um, stress and being nervous is also a bit being excited too. Hmm. And and again, you know, you talk about sort of changing that mindset. I found that's something that really, really helped me that, you know, you're excited because you know you're going to do, you can do really well in this exam. You know, hmm. if it goes right, you could be, you could show them how brilliant you are at this. And so to almost, you know, trying to, to reimagine that because we have such negative connotations with stress, don't we? We absolutely do. And what you label that same feeling really depends. Your body actually does exactly the same thing, you know, before you go on a roller coaster ride um, as compared to, you know, walking into an exam hall. So that, again, that's a lovely way of thinking about the, you know, changing your mindset, relabel the same experience in your body and you will be able to step, take it a step closer to it and do yourself you know experience something that allows you to do yourself justice and of course there is a kind of u-shaped curve in terms of um, stress and excitement or whatever you're going to label it because if it becomes too much you know you might move into panic and of course a brain in a state of panic is not one that can engage with um, material in front of it it essentially means the emotional parts of the brain are lighting up because the brain is saying look this is really dangerous it's not about a challenge it's moved into a sort of danger zone and uh, so the frontal lobes where the thinking happens you know and behind your forehead won't be able to engage as effectively so you know you want a kid that's very focused and really feeling very you know feeling that the power of that energy but not so overwhelmed that the emotion has become you know taken can over and hijack the brain so there is a bit of a fine art here about 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 you know holding the balance between a bit of stress and feeling overwhelmed and so ideally what what can we do to sort of help our children in the sort of weeks leading up to exams I mean obviously there's an important you know it, they need to be re revising they need to be prepared for their exams but downtime is quite important too isn't it it absolutely is for a number of reasons. Um, you know, very often it's the kids, you know, in, in, in my working life, I very often have two groups of kids. It's the kids that are slightly over conscientious and on the perfectionist side, or the other kids that are not quite engaged and a little bit laconic to the point of perhaps being disengaged. The kids who are who are perhaps on the perfectionist side and over conscientious do tend to, um, you know, one of the key things is letting them know about the importance of downtime. 
Um, because actually we know that what we call wakeful rest, which is essentially staring into space, daydreaming, after a period of active learning is one of the best ways to consolidate that. We also know that good sleep, it's the glue of the memory. That's not my phrase. I wish that it was, but it's the glue of the memory. So it's the time when your brain is essentially downloading new information. So good sleep is really important. And so if you can get across the idea to a conscientious kid, actually, um, wakeful rest, lots of breaks and good sleep. It's good for your well-being, but it's also good for the content. They can actually take it and use it in a sort of, they can feel like it's good for their learning if that, you know, if that's the thing that motivates them. I think the other thing to recognize is that for all of us, learning in a calm environment is absolutely fundamental. So, um, if the brain feels worried or under threat, and that a threat might include a, a parent yelling, have you done your homework? That's a threat as far as the brain is concerned. And if the brain feels under threat, again, those emotional centers light up and brain activity is finite. There's only so much to go around. And so the brain becomes focused on the emotion in hand, which is feeling under threat, and it cannot engage in the work in front of it. So as a parent, keeping a very calm, warm, low-key emotional environment around that young person is is really ideal. Now, it's a big ask because as a parent, you're always a human being. You know, you cannot be perfect all the time. You will feel all sorts of things, you know, particularly if, you know, for example, your uh, history is, you know, I, uh, you know, I studied really hard and I got a good job and I, you know, changed the trajectory of my life or I missed out my exams and, you know, my life was different or whatever that might be. If it's very emotional for you, try and take that discussion out of the room with your young person and you know let it all hang out with a with a friend or a partner and you know you're, you've got permission to feel like that but try not to bring that into the room with your child because actually that will just confuse muddy the waters and potentially as I say make you feel very wound up and that sense of feeling wound up will impact on your on your child so it's not about uh, dismissing your emotions but just not bringing your emotions into the the study area if you like that makes total sense it's hard though because you know you very often you've either got a child that just just can't get their revision together and they're really disorganized and they know they've got to do it and they say they're going to do it and then you check and you're like you've done nothing or they're so stressed about it that they've kind of ordered all their pencils and they've filed everything right and still <laughs> done nothing and it's so tempting to be like Oh God, child! But of course, all you're doing is making it even more difficult um, for them to achieve something that is already quite hard. Yeah, and look, it will happen because you know we're all human. But you know, if we know we could, you know, the aspiration is to keep it calm and warm, and you know, it will go wrong sometimes because the, because that's what life is. But I think in terms of motivating a, a kid who's not engaged with the work, and I think mostly, you know, particularly for thinking about gateway exams, we are talking about the teenage brain. Now, the teenage brain is a unique. Uh, you know, thing. It is different from the brain of a of a younger child, and it's different from the brain of an adult. The moment you go into puberty, um, your brain is marinated in pubertal hormones, and it moves into a different state. Um, and there's lots of wonderful data, very exciting data in terms of the neuroscience looking at the unique state of the teenage brain. But what is really important, I think, in terms of engaging that learning machine is using the drives of the teenage brain in order to push the revision forward, for example. So there are some drives that that, that we know um, 
are sort of fundamental to the teenage brain. So, for example, um, the move towards autonomy and independence is fundamental. And that means, as a parent, one of the best things you can do is use what I would call a consultative model. So um, that is, we know you've got to do X amount of revision. How are you going to get this done? Um, can you write your timetable and, and tell me what I should do in order to help you stay to your plan? Tell me what you think the hardest part will be. So you're turning this around so that they become the, you know, the architect of their own platform. And that really plays to the strength of, of the teenage brain. They're much more likely to engage in it. And they've written their own policy, which is much a much stronger kind of event. The other drive, uh, there are many drives, but another key drive in the teenage brain is um, a drive towards novelty. And so sitting in a room in the same place with the same highlighter pen will not hit the spot, right? It's not going to be um, an interesting experience for the teenage brain. So you might want to think about mixing up the setting, the way in which Uh, studying happens um, and really mix it up in terms of novelty, where, when and how studying takes place, because that really will engage the teenage brain. The third and really important drive that I would say is particularly relevant here is the drive towards integrating into the peer group. You will have noticed if you have a teenager in your house that peers and friends become really important and parents still are but they don't quite have the rock star quality that they did have in the you know in the 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 middle years the primary school years Um, and there's actually a very good reason for that which I think is really helpful from from a parental point of view to know and the reason that teenagers are zone in on their peer group is that they're trying to figure out the rules for society in the future they've got to figure out how to be part of their future society so their brain is saying you better figure out how to be part of this group or you're going to be excluded which is bad news as far as the brain is concerned so that is why the the social world becomes absolutely fundamental and we can use that in a study context to think about peer-to-peer teaching Right. We also know that if you study uh, in order to teach something to somebody, you learn it in a much more complex and rich way than if you learn something to pass a test. So in other words, if you set up study groups or allow there to be a sort of social aspect to any learning, that is a win-win for a teenager. Um, it, It allows them to engage their teenage brain. And if you have a group that do have a focus on academia and learning together, it will build momentum and it'll be a really positive, wonderful thing. So those are sort of three tips that can sometimes push a a slightly reluctant and disengaged teenager into really taking their passion um, uh, to learn and putting it in a context. I think that's a final thing about teenagers. They love what they love deeply. They often have wonderful passions. Um, so can you embed content that might be slightly dull, dare we say it, into their passion? So a kid who's into hip hop, can they learn their physics equation to hip hop dance? A kid who has to learn a poem, can they learn the poem to keep you up? You try and make it a little, mix it up a little bit and embed in their passion. Again, you know, it's good learning practice anyway, but for the teenager, that might be most uh, effective. That makes complete sense. And I think, you know, exams are about testing the knowledge, but it's about how you've kind of acquired that knowledge. So really exams are a test of planning, 
forward thinking, being organized, thinking. And it's a bit of a gamble, too, because you never know quite what's going to come up in an exam. So, you know, making those good choices when it comes to the gambling you're taking rather than, you know, swatting for something that is probably not going to come up knowing every last bit of it rather than Mm. thinking, am I going to take a sort of more pragmatic view? And I guess that's as parents what we need to be guiding them in terms of their revision about making these good decisions so that they're not doing too much work and overworking themselves, which means that they're not going to perform, but also doing enough work and enough of the right sort of work to be able to get enough knowledge to get them where they want. Exactly. You know, and if if you have a kid, if we're thinking about, again, those kids that may be challenged in terms of organization and um, engagement, if if you had a kid that came to you at the 11th hour and said, look, I've really messed up here. You know, I haven't I haven't done it, done the planning. I've got 15 topics to cover by tomorrow. The temptation would be to yell or mutter, well, it's too late now. Um, again, that would be about taking it outside the room, you know, put the hoover on and say it all to the hoover. If no one's around, do whatever you need to do and then come back into the room and be pragmatic. <clears throat> because actually, if they've come to you to say, I've messed up, that is a compliment. You want to take that with both hands because they're saying, I trust you and I think you can help me here. So actually, it's a brilliant model for a whole range of things that teenagers may may experience in life, not just, you know, messing up in exams. So you want to use this as an opportunity to say you know this is how we're going to figure this out so I would get very pragmatic there and say right okay find out what the marking schedule is is it worth having a guess or is there negative marking and so on and really walk them through an exam and allow them to almost visualize what it might be like by seeing a topic that they may not be able to answer because if they're able to be grounded and not panic in that exam they're much more likely to be able to use the content that they do know so I think that's, I mean, although it's not ideal, it's also something that you can learn. And I guess the other thing to say about, you know, these situations, if it really does go badly wrong and on results day, um, the results are not what you hoped, they will have learned something about themselves. They will have learned, you know, how much it matters to them to pass. They will have learned maybe their strategy needs to be rethought. They will have learned something that's much more valuable, actually, in a life skill than the content of the exams. But I think the other thing now, whether you've got a kid who's over conscientious or whether you've got a kid who's um, struggling to engage, the really important thing about being a parent in these um, in, during the period of exams is holding perspective, right? Holding perspective. Exams are important and they do change your opportunities, but only, you know, for the next year. There's always a chance to retake. There's always a chance to reconsider your goals. And I think, you know, and while it's really important to keep for us to keep perspective, but, you know, there is also data showing that there is a consistent but is tiny but consistent increase in suicide rates, for example, during exam, the exam period. So for some young people, they have completely lost perspective and our jobs as the grown ups is to keep our what ifing to ourselves and think about perhaps, you know, discussing that outside the room, but letting them know there's always a way, way back and that, you know, exams are a means to an end, but they are not permanent. They don't change everything forever. You can, you know, can reconsider. So that is a really key aspect of the support that I think a parent can offer a young person in exam periods. Mm, that makes complete sense you know certainly looking at it from the perspective of a someone who's in their mid-40s you know you just look at your peers and the people that 
were good at exams and did they get the A or the B or the first or the two one? I mean, you know, <laughs> it's about so much more than that. It really um, is. As a, as a parent, obviously, you know, I slightly think the school is in charge of their education. I'm going to support that, but I'm not going to get too involved. What I am going to get involved in is kind of a bit like the sort of, you know, the the trainer of the athlete, the Olympic athlete. I'm going to make sure that, you know, in terms of nutrition, that they've had enough, that they're good at relieving stress, that they are sleeping enough and that the sleep environment is a healthy one. Because these things can make a big difference, can't they, on, on your child's performance? They really can. And, you know, you're both modeling balance because you're not saying let's, you know, let's go on and cram. You're saying these things are important for your well-being. It's a bit like being, you know, the crew in a, in a you know, pit, what they call the pit crew, is it? Well, you know, when oh, there's, yes, you know, you, you, you stop, one. you change the tire. So yes. you're there and you're ready and you're, you know, you're, you're making sure they have regular sleep routine. It's really important, actually, particularly for the teenage brain, because, you know, if you have exams, you know, that start at 9 a.m. and they're used to studying in the night and getting up at midnight, uh, getting up rather at midday and, you know, doing lots of work, but doing it on a different time schedule, they're going to have what we would call um, a kind of social hangover because they won't be able to get up and have their brain in the best state you know at nine o'clock so it's really you know when when the exam starts so it's really important actually to do these pragmatic things that make us enormous difference so good food good rest getting out of the desk you know out, out of the desk area going outside getting into you know the green spaces you know and you can also do lots of things you know even if they're worried about doing content make sure they are going outside and not not studying but they can also walk and talk with you and tell you know let them talk through what they know you know don't do that all the time but you know there are lots of ways of mixing it up so their well-being is in a good balanced state because these you know, nutrition and sleep are the are the you know the motor of the of the brain, and the brain has got to feel in a good space. And they will also get a message from you that you know this is something that you worry about. You're worried about their well being. You're not defining them on the basis of their exam results. You're 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 looking after them because you know that's a wonderful feeling, and it's a you know it's a really nice way to to bond as well to feel looked after. I think this idea of a social hangover is really interesting. And of course, it makes such a lot of sense because teenagers naturally do want to go to bed later and sleep slightly longer, don't they? They do, although the difference is probably smaller than we think. It's probably a couple of hours. Um, and, you know, teenagers sometimes get into quite an extreme kind of um sleep routine so they are up very late and you know particularly during the weekend and then they're not getting up to lunchtime and then by the time they have to go back to school or college there's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care plush care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe fda approved weight loss medications like wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Or whatever, and they're back to, you know, the, the sort of West, Western world timetable. They really do struggle. Um, and there's lots of evidence showing, in fact, there are risky decisions made and risky um, events that happen for teenagers on a Monday morning. And the data suggests particularly that it's that it's a reflection of that shift in the sleep cycle. And so, it, you know, it, it, it is significant. I, I also think that there is, um, you know, an element of, um, you know, being a bit pragmatic about sleep, sleep hygiene. For example, the mobile phone for a teenager stands for friends and trends. Right. What are my friends doing, which we know is a key drive and what's new and what's novel? That's also on the phone. So a, a phone is a really, you know, it's almost like a crucible for everything that matters for a teenager. And having the phone in the room, even if it's switched off, by the way, during doing study, is like doing um, a task in a sleep deprived state. So it's my very strong recommendation to take the phone out of the room while they're studying so they can really disconnect from that. But if we're coming back to sleep, I think what we know is that sometimes young people do tend to have their phone in the room overnight. And I really would strongly recommend that that doesn't happen because, you know, there's social activity going on. Some other kids might be active. And of course, their brain is wondering what's going on. Am I on the WhatsApp group? Is the party being planned? That's where their brain is heading them towards because that's the brain's priority it's not about sleep and so I think you know if we think again about using the consultative model for the teenage brain I would say right our deal is the phone is out your room at night and when you're studying I'm not going to change how much access you get to your phone and I understand that you need to see what's on your phone so you're not turning the phone into the bad guy because you will lose that battle you're saying look I know the phone is important to you I recognize that how are you going to come up with a plan so that you get access to your phone just as much as you ever did but it's not in your room at night it's switched off let's say you know 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock or whatever you decide to do what your what your family routine is and then it goes out of the room and you know make sure that that, that you know, that's a consultative process you're collaborating and you're recognizing the importance of it because it really is important because if you miss out on who's you know who's going to the party for the teenager that is really in that moment really important and so you want to sort of be the be the wingman there and say look I will help you find a way of getting access to your phone but I need to be the one to help you get good quality sleep because that's number one you know in in so many aspects of life and studying is you know is a perfect example of that and we probably need to be modeling that ourselves you know I'm afraid we do I'm afraid we do and there is actually because obviously they you know whatever you're doing in life is the most powerful you know learning opportunity for your young person and we do know that um it does you know these sort of discussions do happen in families and there's data to support that if you use it in your in your at home if you use it for your alarm clock um your child will be watching that and will probably pick up that so you know reconsider how you wake up in the morning reconsider where and when you have access to your phone it's difficult though it is difficult because we're so we are so dependent um but it does you know five pound alarm clock is probably one of the best Mm. investments you will uh, honestly good old analog (laughs) (laughs) Um, in terms of revision does last minute cramming work or does it depend on the person and how the individual's brain works well look I think I mean look we know what the evidence is a well-fed well-rested brain and a good mindset is 
the optimum way to engage with learning material. Um, and I think there are certainly individual differences. If you have a young person that tends to panic or feel overwhelmed, I think going through content that they don't know is unlikely to put them in a good frame of mind. And, it, and you know, as we sort of said right at the beginning of this discussion, if they're getting into a panic state, their thinking brain won't be able to engage. For some young people, and, you know, I can I remember very clearly in one of my psychology um, final exams at university, sitting down the night before and looking at the content and thinking, well, um, I haven't done any of this and crying, putting my head down on the desk and crying. And then I thought to myself, well, this is not going to get the job done. So I stopped crying and I worked far too late. And actually on that one off occasion, for me, it was OK. And usually normally I wouldn't recommend that. But for some kids, in other words, I'm telling the story to say that in some kids in extremis, it's never too late. So I think, you know, is about it's about finding the balance here between recognizing what we know is usually a good idea. Not, you know, it's usually a good idea not to be up late the night before, certainly. And, you know, if you have to cram material, can you get strategic about it? You know, how can you do it in the best way? if that's something that young person can engage with but if it looks like they're panicking and it's just making them feel that there's lots of content they don't know I wouldn't I would consolidate what they do know because that will put their mindset in the best calm positive um, orientation which will mean they make the best of the content that they do know yeah yeah I mean, and so presumably the night before the big exam is a sort of nice, enjoyable family dinner and that kind of agreement that you put away the books for, you know, the day before the exam. Absolutely. Honestly, I think that is that because, you know, what you are telling your brain is, you know, you, you know, you've got this. You know, so really, I think for them in the vast majority of cases, unless there's something, you know, as I say, in extremis. I can I, I would never say never, you know, it's never too late. But I think the ideal scenario is a really calm, familiar family routine. Uh, you know, watch some rubbish, you know, TV together or have dinner, read a book together, look at some old photos, even really all those things that, you know, as a family that you know, draw you together and put you in a positive mindset. And if you can, that will probably you know, put you in a much better state in terms of your brain orientation. And that means you'll do much better in your exam. So it's, you know, it's, 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 you know, it's almost a win-win. You're giving a good message and also it's a better state to be in to do any academic work. Yeah, getting them to laugh. I think that's so therapeutic, oh, isn't it? It really is. And on, I, I actually prescribe this in my clinical work a lot, it, you know, particularly when when relationships are broken down. And we're not talking about that here, but when it's hard to find a connection with your young person, go back and look at old photographs and remember a memory together. And it really it works like magic because you are immediately joined and particularly for teenagers, if they're very little, you know, it's something that's wonderful for a parent, you know, looking at, you know, a little chubby, you know, toddler in, a, you know, their, in their dungarees or whatever that is. And it's far enough away for the teenager to not go, oh, you know, don't look at stupid photos of me. But they can they can laugh at that together if there's a video or a silly video or something that they love to watch, you know, do that. Um, you know, obviously, it, you don't want them sitting scrolling through Instagram by themselves. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about joint um, experiences together, you know, or play a card game or play something you used to play to, you know, together in the olden days because it's familiar. There's a worn lovely positive experience with that and it puts your brain in a great state 
And what about, I mean, I remember uh, knowing some identical twins once um, who were both very, very clever, but one didn't get nervous about exams and the other got cripplingly nervous about exams. And it real had a real impact on how they did. Um, what about if you've got a child who literally almost gets stage fright in the exam? Are there techniques and tools that you can teach them to address this and to help them? I mean, for, I mean, there are there are two things here. I mean, one is going back to that um, kind of premise that we have about the parent holding perspective, right? Your value to me is not your exam results because some people don't engage well with exams. So a kid who really doesn't do themselves justice in an exam situation does not want you to uh, does not want to pick up the message from you that their exam result is what matters to you. So holding that and talking about other you know, other routes through life that are not exam based will be very important. And that's one message. If we're thinking about practical um, strategies, you know, to use day to day for a young person that tends to get a bit of stage fright or feel really overwhelmed in an exam is to make it as exam like as you can in the um, revision period. Now, this is why I actually think this is my personal theory but I think mocks should be much closer to the real exam than they are because what you want to do essentially in, in anxiety your brain believes that something is dangerous and it's pushing you away from that and when you walk away from it you feel calmer and so your brain gets into a bit of a loop a bit of a trick to say aha so that the dangerous thing was what's making me feel bad I'm away from that dangerous thing now I feel calmer so what you want to do is allow the brain to experience the feared situation and get back into a calm state. Because the thing that we know about um, the, the anxiety is it does settle if you can be in the feared situation. Now, that's quite a long way around. Um, but what I'm trying to suggest is that if you can practice being in exam conditions, your young person will learn that being an exam is an exam is okay. They will be in it long enough for the anxiety to settle. So you can do this in lots of different ways. Um, you can think about, um, you know, doing timed uh assessments, for example, exactly in the same way as you would. So using past papers, making it timed, um, you know, allowing them to experience the feeling of not being able to look at a book and, and knowing how long it takes to do each answer and, know, and starting to get into that the ryth rhythm. And it really does work. Um, you might engage school into this. So maybe you can be in the setting that the exams take place. You know, if that's the gym, which is a huge echoing place and it's very unusual, not usually where you're doing your work, can they start to do some, you know, some exercises and some timed essays in that situation? Can they get used to knowing what the phrases are? Put your pen down is the one that rings in everybody's memory, isn't it? So, so try and essentially in a gradual way, try and get the experience of the exam as close to the actual experience as you can so that their brain learns to sit in that and then the novel part which will be the new question and new content will be the only thing they're having to manage now that works well with some young people um, but as I say other young people do you know because of the you know unusual nature of an exam they do struggle with it somewhat and so you know if exams aren't your thing that's okay there are many many routes to success and describing that as a parent and saying well you know there's this way around the world and there's that way around the world will in itself be very calming because you're giving the message that exams aren't the only way to unlock success.
Well, and also, you know, finding sort of famous peers, potentially, who've done really well in life, like look at Richard Branson, you know, mm. didn't he famously sort of fail all his exams? And yet he is one of the most successful businessmen in the UK. So, you know, just showing them, this is not me just saying things to make you feel better. Here are actual examples of people who, and there are actually so many highly dyslexic people who were totally unable to perform in exams who've done incredible things in life absolutely and actually again we're slightly talking about we're not talking about data here this is another pet theory of mine so I have to be clear this is anecdotal thought not data but I actually think that being neurodiverse including dyslexia is a very interesting uh, challenge because I think what you learn is that you have to find another route around something so I always say you know great brains don't always think alike so you will have had to learn tenacity and perseverance and creative thinking um, and actually I can't find any data to show that um, for some young people being neurodiverse um with that kind of tenacious mindset leads to extraordinary things. But I can see it in my, you know, in my, in my clinics and, you know, and many young people that I know that do extraordinary things. Um, and so I think it's, that's a really nice example. So pointing, pointing to some specific people who have done very well and noticing the life skills that um, being neurodivergent offers it's not always easy it's sometimes tiring but you know there's some wonderful things that come from being neurodivergent because you learn to navigate the world in a really different and uh, novel way and what are, at the other end of the spectrum you've got a child who just seems to just not be bothered at all doesn't seem motivated to revise or you know get their ass into gear how i mean how effective is bribery now I would, Marina, I would say that's positive reinforcement. Um, what I actually, what we do actually know is um, that, particularly for the teenage brain, something that would motivate the brain is an internal feeling of success. Right. So um, nothing breeds success like success. So the feeling that you have achieved a goal is enormously um, motivating. So again, let's go back to that consultative role that you might take. So what is it that you want to achieve today? You tell me what you'd like to achieve. So make it really specific, make it small, make it attainable. So let's say there's four or five goals that you've got in a day. So get them to tell you that. Not saying do it. You're just saying I want to know what they are and make them so specific that you and I would both know if that goal was achieved. As soon as you, um, you know, let's say it's a really small specific goal. Let's say we're going to get your you know books out and find uh, a study area like that could be the goal if you're if you're dealing with a young person that's really struggling with engaging once you've done that we're going to celebrate it together we're going to say that's fantastic because actually what you're starting to do is allowing that young person's brain to experience a sense of success and nothing breeds success like success so you would go on and using you know some of the drives I've been talking about before these passions these drives for, towards autonomy and so on start to break down the tasks into much smaller goals and therefore an opportunity to have much more frequent sense of success because if you don't know what you want to achieve in that day you're never going to know that you've achieved the goal and you never get that rush of success and it can all feel a bit deflating and demotivating um, but injecting some of the social world some of the novelty some of the uh, drive towards independence into the content will definitely light up the teenage brain like Vegas. And so saying, 
if you pass your exams, I'll take you on holiday. Is that going to be helpful or not? Well, look, I, you know, every parent knows their child um, best. Um, you know, I'd be cautious about that. And look, again, it's an extremist. If you are, um, if you, I mean, because I guess what you're saying is that, you know, this is, this is the message here that, you know, if you do well, I'll reward you in material goods. Now, sometimes that can be a motivator. And so I'm not suggesting to discount that uh, out of hand. And it might be something to enough to get them start the process of learning. It's also true to say that from a brain science point of view, and the internal motivation is much likely to be stronger. Having said that, teenagers do go through these swings of uh, identity formation. So if during the exam period, their identity doesn't really sit in an, you know, an academic world, maybe they're going to be a poet or, you know, they're going to travel the world, they're going to drop out of school anyway. You know, all these things might be said in a moment in the journey for their search of identity. And if that search for identity coincides with, you know, exam periods, there might be something that you need to do to stick a pin in the exam so that they stay engaged enough and to be able to make a, you know, a, a more uh, measured judgment, you know, post the exam. So in other words, I wouldn't start with that strategy. I wouldn't necessarily recommend it as the optimum strategy, but I can also see why there might be a situation in which parents might go towards that strategy. And I think if you do do that, be aware of what, you know, what you're, the message that you're sending, um, but also recognise that some young people do have moments where they completely disengage from education and then they really want to come back in. So one of the jobs as a parent, again, is holding that perspective in a reasonable way and having a long-term view. That might be that, you know, you do have a young person that doesn't want to engage in academia, but it might be a moment in time. So maybe you're holding them for long enough to see if it's, you know, is it's an identity that's going to stick or is it a period of time that, you know, that they're exploring in that moment. So I don't know if that really answers your question, Marina, but it's sort of, sort of maybe I would think about it. So it's the answer. Very often incentive to come to North Orleans in life. I remember working really hard for my A-levels because I wanted to go to a specific university and that was essentially the bribery that you know, that was the carrot they were dangling. Um, but I guess... But I guess if you wanted to go to that university, yeah. that is very interesting because maybe yeah. that, that, you know, maybe they had to support you in a particular way. But if you thought, okay, that's what I want. Yeah. And sometimes this might be about re re kind of figuring what the goal is for that young person. Is it that they want to do X, Y, and Z? Well, can you see how the exams could be a step in that? Yeah. And it might be that you help them reconfigure that. Um, but definitely if their heart is in it and they feel it more, you know, they feel it internally, it's going to motivate them more powerfully. But in extremis, we don't always, you know, go by the, you know, the ideal route. We might have to do what's necessary. And I presume in all of this, however your child is, whether they are prone to anxiety or need extra motivation, it's really important for them to absolutely know that you love them, whatever happens. Absolutely. And actually, you know, sort of what I was saying about that sort of example of if they come and say they've messed up, you are actually, you know, it's not what we want. Nobody wants to fail an exam. But actually your opportunity to say, I love you, your exam results don't, you know, are not who, you know, what, not why I love you. You know, I want you to, you know, get the best that you want, but 
the reason I love you is because you are you. That unconditional positive regard, you might have heard that expression before. And it's one of the most, really is a beautiful phrase because it's like, you know, I, you know, whoever you are, whatever you say, whatever you do, I love you. And sort of that, put, put a pin in that. The rest are, you know, the rest of the, of the world and what you do and what you say, you know, are other parts. But you and, you know, and who you are is what I love. And that's probably what all the people who have done really well in life, but haven't necessarily performed brilliantly academically or reached those sort of milestones that we all meant to kind of led to believe are the be all and end all. That's probably the one thing that they've all got in common, that they had that unconditional positive regard from the people that they kind of relied on the most. I would I'd like to bet the farm on that. I think that that I think that's that's a it's a very powerful feeling that you you are capable of success, and there are many routes to success. Um, but that feeling that you are loved and supported is the foundation on which everything is built. And so, with that, you know, it really is an extraordinarily powerful um, context to engage in the world. Uh, well, Jane, that is really good to hear because it certainly simplifies things. But it's been so lovely um, to chat to you. I feel so much better equipped for the sort of, well, I'm just starting the kind of period of exams, but I know there'll be a lot of people out there um, who will be sort of in the middle of that and um, really, really reassuring. Um, Jane has written two books um, with uh, Bettina Honan, who is um, another psychologist, and um, they are fantastic, I've got to say. Uh, the Incredible Teenage Brain and How to Have Incredible Conversations with Your Child, I think are two books that need to actually be on the bookshelves of, of all parents. Um, one is directed at parents, telling you about what's going on, making sense of that uh, teenage brain so that we can sort of take advantage of its extraordinary capacity. Um, and How to Have Incredible Conversations with Your Child is actually a really lovely workbook, um, just holding parents' hands a little bit about how to have these um, important conversations, because it's not always that easy when teenagers are typically uncommunicative. Um, so highly recommend uh, those two books. Um, Jane, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a real pleasure, um, as always, to talk to you. And thank you all for downloading this episode of The Parenthood. You can subscribe, rate and review wherever you found this podcast. You can also follow me on Instagram. I'm at marina.fogel. But in the meantime, um, from Jane and me, thanks for listening and good luck with those exams. When we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/style for free shipping and 365-day returns.